Welcome, everybody, to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. We are on episode 23. We have a really, really jam-packed episode for you this evening. Uh, We're very excited uh, to bring you our episode on Rastafarianism. Uh, We're also going to talk a bit about Ethiopia, about uh, Haile Selassie, uh, about about a few things, but uh, the general topic uh, that we're going to try to help everybody to understand is going to be uh, Rastafarianism. Um, we want to give a shout out to Young Athlon 399, who's hosting us on Periscope right now. Uh, you can, of course, follow us there at ISM Podcast uh, underscore. Um, with me, as always, is my co-host. That is Scott. You can follow him at L Deuterino on Twitter and on Periscope. I, of course, go by Dopanephrine, and you can follow me on both of those platforms as well. We are right down to the wire here. We've been we've been working on this for. Um, uh, on and off for a couple of weeks now, and uh, we were we were still writing just a few minutes before we went live. Uh, Scott, are you? Do you still have your breath? Are you? Are you completely exhausted? No, I'm I'm totally uh, <clears throat> messed up trying to get all this. You know, it should have been two episodes. I was thinking, like I told you earlier, like the uh, Scientology. One part L. Ron Hubbard, and another part Scientology. Because once I started going down the rabbit hole of Haley Selassie, I realized there is a lot of information here. And it's a shame that we're just going to like sort of cover him and then move on. But yeah, we could, we could do, we could do an entire episode just on, just on this individual. Uh, He's a fascinating um, person. We're going to do our best to get to the main course of the episode uh, as quickly as we can so that we can we can really um, uh, get through all of the interesting uh, stuff that we have put together for this evening. Um, first off, we should probably handle our basic uh, our basic stuff. If you want to call us up, if you have a question or a comment, if you want to be on the air, you can call us at 646-564-9551. Our phone lines are open. Our chat is also open on Blog Talk Radio. You can engage with us there. And of course, uh, feel free to comment in the uh, in the Periscope as well. Uh, again, that's being done by Young Athlon 399. We want to thank Cat uh, is Cat. That's All Hallows Night on Twitter. Um, she helps with some of our research and development. She serves an administrative role uh, quite often. Uh, and we want to thank At uh, Arabin. Uh, she is our coordinator, and she does the graphics for the show, all the cool posters that we get to put up. Uh, each and every week. We also really want to encourage everybody to stay tuned to the very end of this episode. When we get down to the to the bottom of the show, we've got a very big announcement that we are incredibly excited to be able to share with you this evening. So stay with us to the very, very end for that. Uh, and of course, we'll be talking about that uh, on Twitter as well after the broadcast. Let's get started with the uh, news of the week. I think we just have um, uh, two things to cover this time. We're going to try to keep things uh, relatively brief again, because we've got a lot to cover when it comes to Rastafarianism. Um, but something, something really, really interesting happened. We, we found this, we found this to be uh, a fascinating turn of events. Um, for anybody living in Texas, you might be familiar with Representative Randy Weber um, of, of, of Congress. A few days ago, they had the annual Washington A Man of Prayer event. Um, 
uh, Scott and I got to got to watch the the video of this. I can't uh, I can't play it in this in the show, but I will share it on the uh, on the ISM podcast underscore Twitter feed so that everybody else can watch this. It is simultaneously hilarious and terrifying. It is it is kind of funny, but at the same time, it's kind of depressing. Um, I've got uh, an article here from uh, rightwingwatch.org that includes the, uh, the video, but I'm just going to go through this article. Um, two dozen members of Congress joined religious right activists in Washington, D.C. for the annual Washington Manor Prayer event. Uh, that's held in Statuary Hall inside the U.S. Capitol. It's organized by the Jefferson Gathering, which is a project of right-wing pastor Jim Garlow's Skyline Church in California. Um, the prayer event was kicked off by Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, while Senator Steve Daines from Montana and Representative Tim Wahlberg of Michigan served as honorary hosts. Over the course of an hour and a half, 20 different members of Congress took to the podium to lead the gathering in prayer, including Representative Randy Weber of Texas, who repeatedly choked up while begging God to forgive this nation for the sins of legal abortion and marriage equality. He modified the Lord's Prayer to declare, quote, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth here in the halls of Congress. Weber confessed the sins our nation has been so emboldened to embark upon and pleaded with God to forgive us. Quote, we have endeavored to try and kick your word out of public schools, Weber said. Father, we have endeavored to take the Bible out of classrooms, the Ten Commandments off the walls. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Father, we think we're so smart. We have replaced your word and your precepts with drug-sniffing dogs, with metal detectors, with uniformed police officers in our schools. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Father, we have trampled on your holy institution of holy matrimony and tried to rewrite what it is, and we've called it an alternate lifestyle. Um, he continued as his voice cracked and he began to weep. Father, oh, Father, please forgive us. This goes on and on. Um, in fact, he decides to quote Deuteronomy. He says, Lord, we have gone to killing the most innocent amongst us, uh, uh, choking up and, and kind of fighting back the tears. He says, your servant Moses warned in Deuteronomy 19 for us to choose life so that we and all our descendants might live. Father, we're killing our descendants and we're calling it a choice. Oh, God in heaven, forgive us, please. Um, Okay, so a, a few things. Uh, right off the bat, first off, it's ridiculous. Um, forget that he's a congressman. This is somebody who's, who's uh, weeping in public uh, talking to the, the man in the sky that he believes is Yeah, that, that's the part. Like, I see the funny. There's a full-grown adult man at a podium crying while he's talking to his imaginary friend, and it's, it's part hilarious. But you know that part of the Lord's Prayer that he modifies, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth here in the halls of Congress? That's terrifying. Yes. That's, that's the, the, the door opening to that, you know, that church in Alabama that got their own police force. And now he's like, you know what? Maybe Congress should just be doing the, enforcing biblical law. Yeah, to, to, to go the, the extra step and uh, say that, that God's work should be being done in a secular governing institution ruled and defined by the same document that enshrines freedom of religion um, is pretty disturbing. Um, this isn't associated specifically with like a bill or a larger plan, but it shows you where this guy's head is at. 
it shows you where his priorities lie. Um, he sees Congress as a tool to be used to further God's will rather than as a governing body to legislate and regulate uh, the, uh, the laws of the United States to, to form treaties with other nations, uh, so on and so forth. He instead thinks that, uh, that, that Congress should be working to do God's will, and that is, that is truly disturbing. We, and again, I will I will make sure that that goes up on on ISM. You, you should you should do yourself a favor and watch the uh, and watch the video. It's it's again it's it, it's hard to laugh because of how serious and and kind of troublesome it is, and yet it's kind of impossible it to not me. find it amusing. It, it's funny. It just is. Um, the other thing that we want to make sure that we include. Um, we've been, we've been getting a lot of, uh, a lot of contacts, um, during the week b- between last show and this show about the events in Chechnya. Um, we don't, we don't need to recover it. I, I, I think that, that most people, uh, who, who are following ISM are aware of this at this point, the concentration camps for homosexual men that have been opened by, um, the, uh, the leader of Chechnya, which is a, a Russian province, um, that is a that is a majority Muslim um, part of Russia, but there is a, a bit of an update, and uh, I've been I've been kind of I've been kind of frustrated at not being able to have a have a have a clear sense of what what we can do as individuals who would like to help the the suffering of people who are being put in concentration camps and tortured there. Um, it it seems it seems very difficult to find a way to actually help. Um, but first for our update, this is from yesterday's New York Times. Uh, I'm just going to read an excerpt, not the entire article. Uh, this is uh, uh, from Moscow. Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel took the opportunity of a rare visit to Russia to raise human rights issues on Tuesday with Vladimir Putin, a noted departure from their continuing differences over Ukraine and Syria. Uh, Ms. Merkel said, she had talked to Mr. Putin about her concerns on civil rights in Russia, including, among other issues, the persecution of gay men, a new ban on Jehovah's Witnesses, and the arrest of anti-Kremlin protesters. We, we talked about the Jehovah's Witness thing a few weeks ago as well. Uh, in, the same, in the same country, uh, they are declaring Jehovah's Witnesses to be terrorists, and uh, there's been a lot of talk about actually forcing them out of the country because of their uh, religious decisions. Yeah, <clears throat> Ms. Merkel said, um, I have in my talks with the Russian president indicated how important it is the right to demonstrate in a civil society and how important the role of NGOs is. Mrs. Merkel said at a news conference in Shoy, Russia, referring to non-governmental organizations. I also spoke about the very negative report about what is happening to homosexuals in Chechnya and asked Mr. President to exert his influence to ensure that minorities' rights are protected. She added, he hosted her at his uh, residence in Shoshi. Uh, it was her first visit to Russia since May of 2015. In Germany, these talks are important for the chancellor as she faces a difficult race for a fourth term in elections scheduled for September 24th. Gay rights protesters have engaged in a 48-hour vigil outside Ms. Merkel's office demanding that she bring up the issue of gay men in Chechnya. Asked about recent arrests of protesters in Russia, Mr. Putin said, our law enforcement and judicial organs act within the framework of the laws that exist in Russia and will continue to act in that way, observing order and discipline. That was a nice brush off. 
yeah, he um, he basically did did absolutely nothing to um, to actually confront the issue. But um, our our congratulations to Ms. Merkel for um, being willing to raise this issue. Um, she took the opportunity to uh, uh, of speaking with Mr. Putin to uh, to bring this up specifically. Now, it looks like she she did that after some political pressure, um, which means that your voice can matter. Um, again, most of our audience is in the United States, but the people of Germany um, were also, of course, aware of this issue, and they pushed um, their chancellor to bring this up when she had the opportunity to speak with Putin, and uh, that's very encouraging. Um, I'm, I'm very glad to, uh, uh, to see that. Um, we've also been, been uh, hearing from people who want to know what they can do to help, and uh, during the last episode, um, I was kind of frustrated with the, with the lack of, of resources that I had been able to locate. We have found something um, that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, there's an organization called the Rainbow Railroad. It's a, it's a Canadian charity that helps LGBT refugees escape from places where they are in danger because of their sexuality. Um, we encourage you to visit them at rainbowrailroad.ca to donate. Uh, a group of people also set up a Facebook group called Helping Gay Men Flee Chechnya, uh, which was launched last week. It has surpassed its $100,000 goal with more than two weeks to go. It was very, very fast. Uh, people are uh, impassioned by this, by this issue and they want to do what they can. Uh, those funds are also supposed to go to Rainbow Railroad. So you can, you can sort of take your pick there if you want to support the people that are, that are doing this on Facebook or if you want to give it directly to Rainbow Railroad. I guess uh, they are essentially going to the same place. Um, we've shared Rainbow Railroad on the ISM Twitter page for easy access. Um, and we will also get a link up for the Facebook group helping gay men flee Chechnya so that uh, everybody can, uh, can communicate with them, uh, offer their support, uh, or just uh, engage in the conversation. We're, we're very encouraged by that, and we're, we're glad to see that. Again, that's rainbowrailroad.ca. Uh, it's a Canadian group, and they help, um, they help uh, uh, sex, uh, LGBT refugees all over the world um, who, are, who are being persecuted or tortured or what have you. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a pretty great, that's a pretty great, uh, uh, mission. Um, okay. That should just about do it for our news portion. Um, and what we want to do is see where we're at this week for truth pursuit. Yeah. Um, so last week I brought up that, that idea of, you know, it is, is staying in religion kind of akin to uh, a form of the Stockholm Syndrome, where you kind of identify with your captor, and even though they're doing and suggesting horrible things, you're, you're, you're defending that in some way, kind of apologizing for it. And so I had a couple of periscopes about that, and the, and the conversation, you know, started off there and went pretty interesting, but then it it just came down to how to, how to have the conversation again. You know, we, we talked about all this, you know, the, the psyche involved in it and, and maybe that's how we should approach, you know, I'm asking this question about Stockholm syndrome uh, <clears throat> because I'm like, maybe that's how the, the atheist should talk to uh, the theist is maybe with an understanding that there might be some kind of a, a psychological thing happening here and when you get frustrated with why am I not getting through 
perhaps that's it. And you could have a little more patience, but it boiled down again to how do we have the conversation? And so I think that for this next week, uh, the truth pursuit, what we should engage on is should the conversation be counter apologetics or should it be uh, SE street epistemology? What's mm. the best way to try and have this conversation? Uh, for anybody who doesn't, who isn't familiar with, um, with uh, street epistemology, it is a, a very, a very neat process of Socratic thinking and Socratic questioning um, where Somebody who is who is attempting to practice the Socratic questioning engages with an interlocutor, uh, usually for a limited amount of time, and asks them questions about deeply held beliefs. Um, there is a book by Peter Bogosian that sort of outlines the uh, the concepts of street epistemology. Um, some of you may be aware of Anthony Magna Bosco. Uh, he has a prominent YouTube channel and he also runs a Periscope channel where he will actually go out and let you watch him use street epistemology in real time. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a neat process to get to see in action uh, and, it, and it certainly uh, yields results. Um, you can you can follow uh, Anthony Magna Bosco on uh, on on Twitter on um, Periscope and on YouTube. Um, we also uh, have spoken a little here and there with Dan Simpson. I Dan Simpson is his handle on Periscope and on Twitter, and he also engages in street epistemology. I think just a few weeks ago in Chicago, he met up with Mr. Magna Bosco and they had a conversation. Uh, Dan writes about street epistemology and engages in it himself. So those would be a few resources for anybody who's just hearing about this right now. That would be a good place to start. Um, I think the book by um, Peter Bogosian is a manual for creating atheists, if memory serves. Um, and so if you, if you want to check that out, you can do that. They also talk about this in the app uh, that, that's available, at least for iPhone. I'm not sure if it's on Android. It's called Atheos, and it was funded um, through the Richard Dawkins Association, I believe. Um, uh, and it sort of, it sort of highlights the differences between counter apologetics and street epistemology and can sort of serve as a, as a bit of a training, uh, uh, a way of, a way of learning how to engage in the Socratic questioning yourself. If you're interested in that. I, I try, I start with a couple of Socratic questions and then I end up counter apologetics immediately. <laughs> I can't let go. <laughs> so I need yeah. a lot of work. It's it's yeah I've uh, I'm not I'm not uh, one who engages in street epistemology much myself either. But I have great respect for it. It 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 seems to uh, it seems to it seems to work. Um, it doesn't Absolutely. work all the time. Nothing nothing works all the time. Um, but uh, counter apologetics. If you're familiar with me on on Periscope or or with Scott on Periscope or Twitter, um, that tends to be more the camp that that we are that we are comfortable with. Let's say. And I I asked this question to uh, both Matt Dillahunty and Anthony Magnabosco. And Matt Dillahunty just started laughing because he asked the same question to Anthony earlier in that afternoon. You know, how do we do it? Is it counter-apologetics? Is it SE? Is there a certain amount of SE we can do and then start doing counter-apologetics? You know, how it goes. So, so everybody's, you know, trying to figure out the best way to go about it. And you're right. Not one method works 100% every time. So it, it might be, you know, well to, to be well-versed in several different methods. 
Yeah, it's nice to uh, it's nice to uh, have have three or four tools for the same job rather than just having to rely on one. Sometimes uh, there are variables that uh, you need to be able to account for and, and adjust to. Um, that's a that's a that's a good choice for the uh, for the truth pursuit. Um, you can engage with Scott uh, on Twitter at El Didorino. Follow him on Periscope as well, and I'm sure that he will uh, further that conversation at some point during the week to to come, assuming that we have the time. Because again. Given our announcement at the end of the show, it's going to be a very, very busy week for um, for the team at ISM. Um, we wanted to uh, touch on, as promised, um, last week's Logic That Fallacy segment. So let's do that now. It's time for... It's not logical! That is illogical. Why are people so illogical? It's perfectly logical. That's like the worst logic ever. Logic that fallacy. Okay, last week we shared uh, vignette number two um, that was called Right, and we met uh, a woman named Georgia. She was going through uh, the final ritualistic ceremony to join the Order of Scientism. Um, she ended up uh, going through a, a few phases that were described during the story. Um, and near the end, after, after, being, after being helped by the group, as she sort of entered the final stage of being accepted into this group, um, she said, thank you all. I am so happy. I know more than ever that this order is true. How else could such a powerful ceremony have possibly been developed without the direct access to the truth that only scientism allows? We asked the audience to uh, look for the logical fallacy hidden in that story. Um, we had uh, uh, one call-in attempt last week and a few more people engaged uh, in the chats during the show. Uh, it was finally answered correctly on Twitter by uh, Julia E. Uh, we wanted to give her a shout-out. She nailed it. She got it uh, exactly right. First try, uh, you can follow her if you, if you like. Uh, give, her, give her a big thumbs up. Let her know that she is amazing for figuring it out. Uh, her handle is at Julia E. Left Her I1. A little long. Julia E-L-E-F-T-H-E-R-I-1. Uh, the answer was argument from ignorance. Uh, the argument from ignorance uh, is also known as appeal to ignorance, in which ignorance represents a lack of contrary evidence. Uh, this is a fallacy in informal logic. It asserts that a proposition is true because it has not yet been proven false or vice versa. This represents a type of false dichotomy in that it excludes a third option, which is that there may have been an insufficient investigation and therefore there is insufficient information to prove the proposition be either true or false, uh, nor does it allow the admission that the choices may in fact not be two, true or false, but maybe as many as four. So she felt the, the, the power, the, the confirmation bias of, of, of the inculcation that she was entering scientism uh, and and her, her query was, how else could all of this be possible without direct access? She had no contrary evidence, so she was willing to declare her first hypothesis as true. Argument from ignorance is the second logic that fallacy answer. Um, next week, we will uh, we will likely – either next week or the week after. We still have to figure out a couple of things. Um, we will have uh, vignette 
uh, number three. It's also a really, really good one, and we encourage everybody to tune in for that. You can give us a call, 646-564-9551, during that broadcast uh, to let us know if you have figured out the logical fallacy. And as always, Logic That Fallacy is sponsored by the Recovering from Religion organization. You can can visit their website at recoveringfromreligion.org. Uh, They have a 24-hour hotline for people who are struggling with doubt, who are in the process of leaving their faith and may be dealing with um, the the struggles that go along with that. They've got uh, people there to be supportive, to listen to what you have to say uh, around the clock. So we encourage anybody who is in that place, who is beginning to doubt, to utilize that resource at recoveringfromreligion.org. All right. Well, I hope I'm not moving too quick. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's probably coming through how excited I am. Um, I'm, I'm sort of amped up and ready to go with all of the, all of the, all of the fun we've had with the research over the past week. Um, I think unless I'm forgetting something that we are ready to jump in. Now a little um, bit of, uh, East Africa, I think is coming up. Yeah, that's where that's where we want to start. Um, why don't we start with everybody's favorite fossil, the ever remarkable Lucy? You guys have probably, if if you've been very fortunate, you've caught uh, like a late night PBS documentary about Lucy somewhere along the line. Um, I, I, I really I have a, I have a fondness for uh, for for Lucy, um, an American paleoanthropologist Donald Caro Johansson um, discovered Lucy uh, on November 24th of 1974. Um, he discovered her with Eve Coppins and Maurice Taib. Um, it's the fossil of a female hominin australopithecine known as Lucy. It was found in the Afar Triangle region of Hadar in Ethiopia. So we wanted to start, since we're going to be talking about Ethiopia so much, we wanted to start right here with this very, very cool Australopithecine. And I am about to nerd out on everybody. Um, I get so (laughs) excited with biological anthropology and with all of these remarkable fossils and being able to trace our lineage all the way through way before even prehistory ideas. Um, I, I really, I really do get excited. So well, if you guys can... we started talking about this two nights ago, you, you you said the word Lucy, and then we talked for two hours about the awesomeness of humans, and we mentioned <laughs> Lucy. I know, I know. So yeah, you do nerd out a little bit, but it's good. I do. Yeah, you guys will probably hear me grinning uh, throughout. Uh, so I. <laughs> I, I appreciate um, you guys. Hopefully this doesn't get too awful technical. Uh, I'm, I'm far from an expert. I studied uh, biological anthropology a bit in college uh, and also uh, studied Africa um, from, from ancient times through to, to more, more modern times uh, for anthropology and had so much fun doing it. Um, I, I, I despise the math classes, but as soon as we got to go to an anthropology or sociology class, I, I mean, like, I was so, so excited to do it. It was always it was always a blast. Let's talk about what Lucy is. Um, she is Australopithecus afarensis. This is an extinct hominin that lived between 3.9 and 2.9 million years ago. Uh, a. afarensis was slenderly built 
like the younger Australopithecus africanus. There are a lot of Australopithecines. Um, they, they're, they're sort of found all over Central and Eastern Africa. Uh, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, natural radiation, selective radiation that was occurring uh, during, during this period, the, uh, the, the Pliocene uh, uh, era. Um, Afrensis is thought to be more closely related to the genus Homo, which includes the modern, homo, uh, modern human species Homo sapiens, whether as a direct ancestor or a close relative of an, unknown, of an unknown ancestor, than any other known primate from the same time. So we're back between, between 3.9 and 2.9 million years ago, and in that whole period, in that, in that million-year span, this is the closest uh, – uh, primate to, to, to us, to our lineage that we have found yet. There could be, there could be more out there. This is what's so exciting about, uh, about archaeology and about, about biological anthropology. There's, there's always more to discover. It's like this never-ending mystery where we keep getting to unveil just a little bit more, a little bit more, and each time we do, we learn a little bit more about where we came from and what led to our evolution. Um, Australopithecus afarensis fossils have been discovered within eastern Africa, despite Lyotoli being the type locally for afarensis, which was found in uh, Tanzania, if memory serves. The most extensive remains assigned to the species are found in Hadar, the Afar region of Ethiopia, including the above-mentioned Lucy. Um, uh, other localities bearing afarensis remains include Omo, Maka, Frejej, and, uh, oh dear, uh, Belodeli in Ethiopia. Um, they also found some in uh, Kubifora and Lathagum in Kenya. Um, I should really like memorize all these pronunciations before we go live because I trip over them. I, I've got, I've got like just a terrible American take. Oh man, I can never. Yeah, it's, my it's, pronunciations it's, are horrible and I just stumble through them and hope nobody notices. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the best that you can, <laughs> that you can really do. Considerable debate surrounds the, locomotor behavior of afarensis. Some studies suggest that afarensis was almost exclusively bipedal, while others propose that creatures that the creatures were partially arboreal. The anatomy of the hands, feet, and shoulder joints in many ways favor the latter interpretation. In particular, the morphology of the scapula appears to be ape-like and very different from modern humans. The curvature of the finger and toe bones approaches that of modern-day apes and is suggestive of their ability to efficiently grasp branches and climb. Alternatively, the loss of an abductal great toe and therefore the ability to grasp with a foot, a feature of all other primates, suggests that afarensis was no longer adapted to climbing. Um, a boreal, let me, let me, a boreal um, is, is where you kind of you don't walk like a dog where you need all four legs all the time. A boreal is sort of like, um, uh, like, like a gorilla where they can sit down and, and kind of use their hands. But when they're walking, they tend to do it on all fours, sort of the, 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 the knuckle walking that you see uh, with some of the extant uh, ape species, um, especially the gorilla. Um, a number of traits in uh, Australopithecus afarensis, uh, in, in, the, in that skeleton strongly reflect bipedalism to the extent some researchers have suggested bipedality evolved long before afarensis. Um, in overall anatomy, the pelvis is far more human-like than ape-like. The iliac blades are short and wide, and the sacrum is wide and positioned directly behind the hip joint. Uh, evidence of a strong attachment for the knee extensors is clear. While the pelvis is not wholly human-like, 
being markedly wide or flared with laterally oriented iliac blades. These features point to a structure that can be considered radically remodeled to accommodate a significant degree of bipedalism in the animal's locomotor repertoire. The oscillopithecines are remarkable organisms for many reasons, but what I like to focus on is the wide adaptive radiation their fossils suggest was taking place in Central and Eastern Africa during the Pliocene Epoch and moving the remarkable ape tree of evolution that would become a dominant force in Africa during the Pleistocene and eventually giving rise to man. Lucy, who called Ethiopia home millions of years ago, is a relative of Homo sapiens. When we think of history in the extraordinarily long term, when we trace our genome across the ages and study the path our earliest ancestors took across the globe, we discover that Africa is humanity's original home. In a poetic sense, we can all think of Ethiopia and the surrounding regions as our species' hometown. This is where quadrupedal, tailless primates began their journey towards bipedalism, a process that slowed them down considerably, making them easier prey for the large predators of the time Yet nature selected these traits. What benefit could be so powerful that it dominates the power of being able to escape prey? Well, let's think about what happens when we stand up on our back legs. Our front ones become arms. Our front feet become hands. As we move from Lucy towards more and more modern fossils, we see a steady growth of cranial capacity, allowing for a complementary set of features that have proven to be the most potent combination for survival in the history of terrestrial organisms. In and around Ethiopia, apes stood up, gained dexterity in their front feet while their back legs grew and their foramen magnum slowly shifted from the back of the occipital bone to the bottom. An increase in a meat-based diet provides more calories and less time required to eat. This allows gracile apes to provide the caloric requirements for an increasingly more powerful brain. What we, what we, what we see here, let me, let me try. Some of you probably are, are, are way ahead of the curve here. Some, some people might not be super familiar with, with what all of this means. Um, the occipital bone is at the, is at the, is at the base of the skull in the back. Um, and the form in magnum, is basically the oval-shaped hole that your spine goes through. So if you, if you, you know, could, could take your skull off and look at it, your spine goes right through the bottom of it, and your head sits on top of your body. If you think of, of, of a dog or a deer or a cat or, or whatever, and they walk on four legs, that hole goes through the back of their head because their head is, is pointing forward in front of their body instead of sitting atop it. So over time, as apes stood up, that hole gradually shifted lower and lower so that we wouldn't be all awkward trying to walk around bipedally with this, with this weird head sticking out in front of us. We get to, we get to perch it up high, which is rather convenient. Um, and, that's, and that's essentially what that means. Um, the cranial capacity of apes is a great way to kind of figure out what they're capable of. We see a, a, a gradual increase as we go along. Lucy's cranial capacity was between 375 and 500 cubic centimeters. Um, by comparison, humans have brains about three times that size at roughly 1300 cubic centimeters. And by the way, don't let anyone tell you that our cousins, the Neanderthals were dumb by comparison. Their cranial capacity was around 1600 cubic centimeters giving them a substantial edge over Homo sapiens in the brain department. The way that we get to measure this is um, 
you can measure the volume of, of, of a cranium by getting a skull and holding it upside down, and you get um, uh, tested you know, regimented beads that are all the exact same size. And you can pour these glass beads into the skull like it's a bowl until it's full, and then pour those into like a, into like a flask that measures volume. And you can see how, how full the vial is of the glass beads that, that fit inside the skull. And then that measurement allows us to see what the cranial capacity is of any given skull. Um, the Neanderthals surpassed us a little bit, um, but of course died out. Um, Homo sapiens still have a remarkable cranial capacity. It's, it's, it's quite high, um, but they had, they had a, little bit more, uh, a little bit more brain matter um, when, when the Neanderthals were around so many years ago. Um, the question has, since our understanding on the connection between the Australopithecines and the human or Homo line is where, when, and how did speciation occur? What's the connection between the Australopithecines, uh, like Lucy, and the Homo line? The Australopithecine line being being one type of ape, and the Homo line being being something that's a bit different. This is one of the grandest puzzles in biological anthropology. But two years ago, a very very cool discovery was announced. Um, I remember reading about this and having to call people, having to call my friends, and they're like, "What? what? I don't care." And I'm like, "I'm like." just elated. I'm on the phone with buddies of mine, like, ah, you can't, I can't wait till I tell you what happened. Um, and <laughs> I'm such a dork, man. My, my friends are saints for putting up with all this. Um, uh, do, do us, do us the honor, Scott, let us know what the guardian said about the, uh, about the discovery that was made in 2015. Uh, a lower jawbone and five teeth discovered on a hillside in Ethiopia are the oldest remains ever found that belong to the genus Homo, the lineage that ultimately led to modern humans. Fossil hunters spotted the jaw poking out of a rocky slope in the dry and dusty Afar region of the country about 250 miles from Addis Ababa. Uh, the U.S.-led research team believed the individual lived about 2.8 million years ago when the now parched landscape was open grassland and shrubs nourished by tree-lined rivers and wetlands. The remains are about 400,000 years older than fossils, which had previously held the record as the earliest known specimens on the Homo lineage. The discovery shed light on a profoundly important but poorly understood period in human evolution that played out between two and three million years ago, when humans began the crucial transformation from ape-like animals into forms that used tools and eventually began to resemble modern humans. This is the first inkling we have of that transition to modern behavior. We are no longer solving problems with our bodies, but with our brains, said Brian Villamore at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Basically, um, what's being described here, it's, it's, it's already a poor premise, so I even, I even hate to, to sink to this, but what's being described here is a missing link. Everything's a missing link. Everything is a missing link. When you know, when the, I thought you were what I thought you were going to say was discovered two years ago was a big black monolith. That would explain <laughs> a lot. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, that's that. We got to find that. That's out there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> it's around. Stanley Kubrick told me so. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is this is 
400,000 years. That's, that's, that's double a, a liberal estimate of, of human history. That in between uh, the, early, the earliest uh, Homo fossils and the most recent Australopithecine fossils found in the same place. Um, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys what happens here when you engage in the, um, in the missing link debate. Where's the missing link between Australopithecus and Homo sapien? Well, um, here's one. That, that's, that's helpful. Um, this, this might lead us to, uh, to something like uh, Homo habilis. Um, maybe not Homo habilis directly, but something that predates Homo habilis that we have yet to discover. So here you have found the missing link. Okay, so where's the missing link between this and Australopithecus? And where's the missing link between this and Homo habilis? Right, so we found... We found the missing link, and what has that done? It's opened two new slots for missing links to exist in. If you find 10 missing links, there are now 20 new holes where there must be missing links. It's, it's never-ending. No matter how many missing links you find, since you now have more, uh, more transitionary fossils, you have more slots in which people that just don't like the idea of evolution can demand for a missing link or else it's all pseudoscience. Well, and that's what I was to say. The people who are demanding for these missing links uh, are expecting that every single living creature leaves a fossil. Right. Right. Very, very few do. Very few do. We're talking about millions of years ago. Bone breaks. Bone gets crushed and pulverized and buried and washed away and chewed on and, and, um, you've got to have very, very special conditions. Um, the right and kind of environment. And completely buried and yeah. Yeah. Most, most fossils are, are long pulverized, are long gone. It's, it's a lucky and rare find when we get to actually, actually pick one up that is, um, that is salvageable, that is studyable. Um, the new fossil, which was found at a site called Leti Guerrero, was, uh, has a handful of primitive features in common with an ancient forerunner to modern humans called Australopithecus afarensis. That's Lucy. The most well-known specimen, uh, the three-million-year-old Lucy, okay, was unearthed in 1974 in Hadar, only 40 miles from the Leti Guerrero site. But the latest fossil has more modern traits, too. Some are seen only in the Homo lineage such as a shallower chin bone. The picture that emerges from the fossil record is that 3 million years ago, the ape-like Australopithecus afarensis died out and was superseded by two very different human forms. One, called Paranthropus, had a small brain, large teeth, and strong jaw muscles for chewing its food. The other was the Homo lineage, which found itself with much larger brains, a solution that turned out to be more successful. By finding this jawbone, we figured out where that trajectory started, uh, said Villamore, this is the first homo. It marks in all likelihood a major adaptive transition. What drove Australopithecus to extinction and led to the rise of homo is a mystery, but researchers suspect a dramatic change in the environment transformed the landscape of Eastern Africa. It could be that there are some sort of ecological shift and humans had to evolve or go extinct, said Villamore. Uh, other fossils recovered nearby the, t the new human remains suggest that the region was much wetter than Hadar, in, than Hadar where Lucy was found remnants of antelopes, prehistoric elephants, primitive hippos, crocodiles, and fish were all recovered from the Ledu Gararu site, um, researchers said. Details of the discoveries are reported in two papers 
published in Science. And of course, this will also go up on the um, on the ISM Twitter uh, uh, following the show. The fossil bones are too fragmentary um, to give them a human species name. The jawbone could belong to Homo habilis, known as Handyman, the earliest known species in the Homo lineage, but Villamore is not convinced. It could be a new species that lived before Homo habilis. Other researchers agree. In a separate paper published in Nature, Fred Spohr at University College London reports a virtual reconstruction of a Homo habilis skull. By digitally exploring what Homo habilis really looked like, we could infer the nature of its ancestor. But no such fossils were known, said Spohr. Now, the Lady Gararu jaw has turned up as if on request, suggesting a plausible evolutionary link between Australopithecus afarensis and Homo habilis. Both of these remarkable organisms lived in the Rift Valley in the Horn of Africa, specifically in Ethiopia. Great Aunt Lucy was from there, and Uncle Homo habilis has roots there as well. Humanity as a species could feel a bit nostalgic for this beautiful region, ever so slowly beginning being separated by the same forces that split Pangaea into modern continents. The Rift Valley, in 10 million years or so, will transition from being a continental rift and become an ocean rift creating a new ocean basin that will separate much of Africa's horn from the rest of the continent. The ecology caused by this rift seems to have been agreeable for the rise of the apes. Our background during the Pliocene and Pleistocene was a tectonic convergence of valleys and mountains not too far from the ocean and surrounding by diverse environments from shrubbery plains to jungles. This is home. If I could take just one trip anywhere in the world, it would be to see the natural wonders of Ethiopia. It, um, it, it, there's something about this subject, something about getting to see these fossils, something about learning um, uh, all of the remarkable things that the, that the evidence of time has left behind for us to discover and play with and, and, and research. Um, it, it just it inspires me on 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 a level that I that I can't even put into words sometimes. Um, it it just really really excites me. It's it's kind of my favorite thing when it comes to um, when it comes to the natural world. Uh, I really really like being able to uh, look at at humanity's roots. Um, it is after all my favorite species. Um, this is um, this is a favorite of mine. So I want to thank you all for geeking out with me. Um, we are hoping to revisit some of humanity's very old history again in another show. Uh, let us know on Twitter if this was a fun topic. This is something a little bit different. So shoot us a message and let us know. Yeah, I, I like the, the evolutionary stuff. I like uh, the biological anthropology uh, part of the conversation. Um, or, nope, that sucked. Please stick, to, please stick to the 21st century, and I will woefully bow my head and acquiesce. <laughs> no. uh, I want the science. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I so, I so love it. Um, okay, Scott, let's get back to our own era. Let's jump ahead a few million years and see what is happening in Ethiopia around the close of the 19th century. So, quick history lesson. In 1895, the Italians invaded Ethiopia from Eritrea, the tiny country between Ethiopia and the Red Sea, which the Kingdom of Italy seized as a colony in 1890. The emperor of Ethiopia at the time was a man named Menelik II. And while, his, while he was in power, Italy was fought back and the invasion failed. Menelik had some help from the Orthodox Christian nation of Russia, 
who liked Ethiopia's Orthodox Christian status and sent military advisors and weapons to help in the fight against Italians and their stupid Catholic ideas. France and Britain also chipped in because they didn't want Italian competition for their own well-established empires. Fun fact, Menelik also held the official title of Nagus, which is an Ethiopian Semitic term for monarch, and is also the term used for the leader of the leader of the Ferengi Alliance in Star Trek. This is why people listen to ISN. They aren't covering this stuff anywhere else. I'm, I knew that Star Trek was going to be in there somewhere. I just, I just didn't know it was going to be tonight. Yeah, I, I whenever, whenever I, you see, here's, here's the thing about tonight. I probably I missed get, it. It's probably been in there already, and I missed it. <laughs> oh, whenever I get an opera, I opened a show one time by talking about Captain Picard. If I, I, this is like, this is practically my birthday. We get to talk about uh, Lucy and all of these cool fossils, and then, and then Star Trek somehow gets involved. It's very, very cool. Yeah, I really thought it was neat that, uh, that they borrowed the term. Uh, Nagus, the, the Grand Nagus of uh, of the Ferengi Alliance, uh, was borrowed from <laughs> from Ethiopia. So this guy, oh. uh, uh, Emperor Menelik, uh, uh, was was a Nagus, just like the Ferengi. Um, <laughs> just like the Ferengi. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Menelik Menelik's oldest daughter had a son, and this has been in my head all day. I cannot figure out how to pronounce this. It's I-Y-A-S-U. I think it's Iyasu. That's how we would say it if it was a Japanese word, but it's not a Japanese word. So it might be Wasu. Um, I'm going to say Iyasu because that's what my gut says, but just bear in mind that this might actually be Wasu, and I might be once again butchering a name of a historical figure. So so sorry in advance. Um, uh, Iyasu was designated... Uh, he was the designated but uncrowned emperor of Ethiopia from 1913 to 1916, following Menelik II's death. Iesu's reputation for scandalous behavior and a disrespectful attitude towards the nobles at the court of his grandfather damaged his reputation. Iesu's flirtation with Islam was considered treasonous among the Ethiopian Orthodox Christian leadership of the empire. Uh, on the 27th of September 1916, Iesu was officially deposed on grounds of conversion to Islam. Um, backing up by a few years, in 1911, two years before the death of Menelik II, a man named Tafari Makonen Woldemichael appointed governor of part of the province of Sedemu, married Menin Asfaw, who was the niece of, I- of, of uh, Iesu, okay? The heir to the throne of the Ethiopian uh, empire was Iesu. This guy, Tafari, marries Iesu's niece. After Iesu is deposed, Menelik II's daughter, Iesu's aunt, became empress, but Tafari was made heir apparent and crowned prince and received the title Ras, an Ethiopian title that literally means head. It has been compared to the title of Duke. Tafari gained the title in 1916, becoming Ras Tafari. Have I lost you, Scott? Are you still with me? Sorry about that. No worries. Uh, at all. For the next 14 years, they ruled together with the Empress, governing while Tafari administrated the empire. He was a de facto leader for much of this time. And in 1930, Tafari succeeded in becoming emperor himself when the Empress died. He became Emperor Haile Selassie I on November 2, 1930, having established himself as defender of 
Menelik's II's modernization efforts and having gained popularity with both progressives and conservatives in government. He was called the King of Kings of Ethiopia. He was crowned at Adibus Abba's Cathedral of St. George. The coronation was by all accounts a most splendid affair, and it was attended by royals and dignitaries from all over the world. Among those in attendance were George V's son, the Duke of Gloucester, Marshal Franchet d'Espray of France, and the Prince of Udine, representing the King of Italy. Emissaries from the United States, Egypt, Turkey, Sweden, Belgium, and Japan were also present. British author Evelyn Waugh was also present, pinning a contemporary report of the event. An American traveler lecturer, Burton Holmes, shot the only known film footage of the event. One newspaper report suggested that the celebration may have incurred a cost in excess of $3 million. Many of those in attendance received lavish gifts. In one instance, the Christian emperor even sent a gold-encased Bible to an American bishop who had not attended the coronation, but who had dedicated a prayer to the emperor on the day of the coronation. I, I lo- what a gift. That's, that's pretty great. You don't even have to show up. Um, it's his party. You don't show up. You stay at home and pray for him, and in return, you get a gold-encased Bible. That's pretty great. Yeah, it probably fetches a pretty penny at the nearest pawn shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine you could uh, you could uh, you could go and hawk that immediately, um, and probably make quite a bit of money. That's true. Um, I wonder where that Bible is now. That'd be kind of be kind of neat. To oh, know. that's it's interesting. In, it's in a museum somewhere or something. I wonder if people can go and see that. Um, and three million bucks in uh, in nineteen thirty. That's yeah. uh that's a big party. Um Selassie was popular with the people as well as the governors and cemented his credibility as a progressive when he instituted the first constitution of Ethiopia in 1931. In the preface in the preface to his translation of this constitution into English, William Stern writes, "It is worthy of note that this was the first instance in history where an absolute ruler had sought voluntarily to share sovereign power with the subjects of his realm. The constitution replaced the supreme law, which had been in place in Ethiopia since the Middle Ages. Um, It took a while for progress to show up, but Menelik uh, had been trying to to modernize sort of in 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 a technological way. He was updating street signs. He was trying to work on infrastructure. Um, and and uh, Haley Selassie was very willing to continue in that. By all accounts, uh, Haley Selassie was very much in touch with the common people. Um, there's, there's video interviews that you can find on YouTube um, where they're talking to uh, people who are old men now but knew him uh, when they were children and talk about how gracious and generous he was, um, a man of dignity, um, but also one who, who didn't, who didn't keep a huge ego around. Um, he was very interested in education. He saw the power in education. He was very uh, grateful for his own education. Um, and he, uh, he tried to um, uh, spend funds where he could to increase the educational uh, facilities in Ethiopia uh, uh, when, he was, uh, when he was governor before he was emperor and then again as emperor. Um, I think there are also stories of him um, like personally just going to where uh, uh, kids were and giving them 
like money from his pocket to buy school supplies. He it was very important to him um, that that people uh, take advantage of the education of the educational um, uh, uh, powers that 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 were available at that time. He very much uh, encouraged and championed um, those ideas. Um, according to his own autobiography, while still regent, Haile Selassie had wanted Empress. Zauditu, uh, who was the daughter of uh, Menelik II, to proclaim such a document, the Constitution, but some of the great nobles to whose advantage it was to rule the country without a constitution had pretended that it would diminish the dignity and authority of the queen uh, if a constitution were set up. Once he became emperor, Haile Selassie then appointed a commission to draft the document. The commission's leading members included the Europeans Gaston Yaze and Johannes Kolmedine. Um, but most prominently, Ethiopian intellectuals such as Tekle Hawariat, Tekle Meriam, and Gadamu Waldegorius uh, uh, were, were, were there for that. This constitution was based on the Meiji Constitution of Japan, a country that educated Ethiopians considered a model for its successful adoption of Western learning and technology. Uh, to the framework of a non-Western culture. Unlike its Japanese model, the Ethiopian constitution was a simple document of 55 articles arranged into seven chapters. It asserted the emperor's own status, reserved imperial succession to the line of Haile Selassie, and declared that the person of the emperor is sacred, his dignity inviolable, and his power indisputable. All power over central and local government, the legislature and judiciary, and the military was vested in the emperor. The constitution was essentially an effort to provide a legal basis for replacing the traditional provincial rulers with appointees loyal to the emperor. It was not intended to be a representative democracy, as the emperor alone had the power uh, to designate senators. Um, so it was important to him to get to a constitution, and he did want eventually for there to be a vote. Uh, I think he said at one point that once the people are prepared, once – I don't know what his metrics were, uh, perhaps once education was pervasive enough, once there was the infrastructure to have polling places, whatever what his concerns were, um, uh, he stated during this time that once – once it was possible, he wanted uh, Ethiopians to vote uh, for their leaders. Uh, according to Haile Selassie, the importance of this legal innovation was not understood on the side of the officials and the people. To educate them on constitutional theory, he called the leading members of both groups to an assembly where its principal author, Tekle Hawarat, delivered a lengthy speech which not only described the contents of the document but expounded a theory of constitutional law. Um, it it's a it's a remarkable little chapter in the life of Haile Selassie and in the uh, history of, of Ethiopia, um, but it was it was slightly overshadowed, um, given that this was the 30s and some some major events were about to occur um, in this uh, in this region. The Italy invades Ethiopia, also known as Abyssinia at the time in 1935, expanding itself once again in an attempt to follow in the footsteps of the older colonial powers. Mussolini was fond of defending his fascistic, uh, fascistic ex expansions by calling his detractors in Europe hypocrites. Countries like France, Portugal, and Britain had long colonial traditions and were quite fond of raping the continent of Africa for its wealth. So Italy defended its actions against Ethiopia as simply a continuation of the long European tradition. The aim of invading Ethiopia 
was to boost Italian national prestige, which was wounded by Ethiopia's defeat of Italian forces at the Battle of Adawa in the 19th century, 1896, which saved Ethiopia from Italian colonization. Another justification for the attack was an incident during December 1934 between Italian and Abyssinian troops at the Walwal Oasis on the border between Abyssinian Somaliland, where 200 soldiers lost their lives. Both parties were exonerated in the incident, much of the to uh, much to discuss of Mussolini, as he felt Abyssinia should have been held accountable for the incident. This was used as a rationale to invade Abyssinia. Mussolini saw it as an opportunity to provide land for unemployed Italians and also acquire more mineral resources to fight off the effects of the Great Depression. Upon defeating Ethiopia, Mussolini proclaimed, at last Italy has her empire, adding, the Italian people have created an empire with their blood. They will fertilize it with their work. They will defend it against anyone with their weapons. Will you be worthy of it? Mexico was the only country strongly to denounce the invasion, and only six countries failed to recognize the Italian empire. This was um, a massive failure at mankind's first attempt at um, some sort of global governing body, uh, some kind of supreme chair that could, that could try to diplomatically handle international incidences. Um, there was a severe lack of courage uh, in Europe and a sincere desire to avoid conflicts that didn't directly involve America. And so when this happened, when this invasion occurred, um, the world was sort of silent about what the Italians were doing. Um, the Europeans didn't really want to get too involved and America really didn't have um, a dog in the fight. And so they saw it as kind of, well, it's not our problem. Um, you can, you can feel these attitudes because the, the, the same attitudes we end up, we end up noticing for the next few years uh, during the, the lead up to world war II um, with the Methodist movement in the United States, wanting to keep the United States from entering a European war and um, uh, figures in Europe who were sort of willing to take Hitler's word that this will be the last time I invade a country. Um, they didn't want to fight. Britain was worried about, about their, their small military, um, and they, they didn't want to risk um, alliances that could, that could harm them. And so Ethiopia just kind of got the short end of the stick. But um, Haile Selassie, as emperor, um, went to the League of Nations. This is before the, the UN. Um, he went to the League of Nations, which Ethiopia was, was a member of, uh, in order to give a speech. Uh, when they were being um, uh, invaded, he went to Geneva uh, to, to speak before the council there. Uh, and he gave a, a rather famous and stirring speech. Um, it's a bit long, so we've, we've just kind of boiled it down to a couple of, of excerpts that we will share um, for the, uh, for the history fans out there. This is a, a remarkable uh, document and, a, and a, pretty, a pretty neat little gauge of, of, what, was, of what was happening uh, at, this, at this point um, of history. It was at the time when the operations for the encircling of Mikhail were taking place that the Italian command fearing a route, followed the procedure which is now my duty to denounce to the world. 
Special sprayers were installed on board aircraft so that they could vaporize over vast areas of territory, a fine, death-dealing rain. Groups of 9, 15, 18 aircraft followed one another so that the fog issuing from them formed a continuous sheet. It was thus that, as from the end of January 1936, soldiers, women, children, cattle, rivers, lakes, and pastures were drenched continually with this deadly rain in order to kill off systematically all living creatures, in order to more surely poison waters and pastures. The Italian command made its aircraft pass over and over again. That was its chief method of warfare. Noting that his own small people, 12 million inhabitants without arms, without resources, could never withstand an attack by a large power such as Italy, with its 42 million people and unlimited quantities of the most death-dealing weapons. He contended that all small states were threatened by the aggression and that all small states were in effect reduced to vassal states in the absence of collective action. Haley Selassie said, It is collective security. It is the very existence of the League of Nations. It is the confidence that each state is to place in international treaties. It is the value of promises made to small states that their integrity and their independence shall be respected and ensured. It is the principle of the equality of states on the one hand, or otherwise the obligation laid upon small powers to accept the bonds of vassalship. In a word, it is international morality that is at stake. Have the signatures appended to the treaty value only insofar as the signatory powers have a personal, direct, and immediate interest involved? No subtlety can change the problem or shift the grounds of the discussion. It is in all sincerity that I submit these considerations to the Assembly. At a time when my people are threatened with extermination, when the support of the League may ward off the final blow, may I be allowed to speak with complete frankness, without reticence, in all directness, such as, such as in demanded by the rule of equality as between all state members of the League. Apart from the kingdom of the Lord, there is not on this earth any nation that is superior to any other. Should it happen that a strong government finds it may with impunity destroy a weak people, then the hour strikes for that weak people to appeal to the League of Nations to give its judgment in all freedom. God and history will remember your judgment. Faced by numerous violations by the Italian government of all international treaties that prohibit resort to arms and the use of barbarous methods of warfare, it is my painful duty to note that the initiative has today been taken with a view to raising sanctions. Does this initiative not mean in practice the abandonment of Ethiopia to the aggressor? On the very eve of the day when I was about to attempt a supreme effort in the defense of my people before this assembly, does not this initiative deprive Ethiopia of one of her last chances to succeed in obtaining the support and guarantee of state's members? Is that the guidance the League of Nations and such of the, state, of the state's members are entitled to expect from the great powers when they assert their right and their duty to guide the action of the League? Placed by the aggressor face-to-face -face with the accomplished fact are states going to set up the terrible precedent of bowing before force? Your assembly will doubtless have laid before it proposals for the reform of the covenant and for rendering more effective the guarantee of collective security. Is it the covenant that needs reform? What undertakings can have any value if the will to keep them is lacking? It is international morality that is at stake and not the articles of the covenant. On behalf of the Ethiopian people, a member of the League of Nations, I request the Assembly to take all measures proper to ensure respect for the covenant. I renew my protest against the violations of treaties of which the Ethiopian people have been the victim. I declare in the face of the whole world that the emperor, the government, and the people of Ethiopia will not bow before force. 
that they maintain their claims, that they will use all their means in their power to ensure the triumph of right and the respect of the covenant. I ask the 52 nations who have given the Ethiopian people a promise to help them in their resistance to the aggressor, that they, what, what are they willing to do for Ethiopia? And the great powers who have promised the guarantee of collective security to small states on whom weighs the threat that they may one day suffer the fate of Ethiopia, I ask, what measures do you intend? Representatives of the world, I have come to Geneva to discharge in your midst the most painful of the duties of the head of a state. What reply shall I take back to my people? It is widely reported that in closing, Haile Selassie said, it is us today. It will be you tomorrow. This quote, we looked it up. It does not appear in the speech transcript nor in the video recording of its delivery. Uh, some say it was more of a murmuring as he yielded the floor. It's possible he never said it at all, but it's a hell of a quote. Another Selassie quote. Throughout history, it has been the inaction of those who could have acted, the indifference of those who should have known better, the silence of the voice of justice when it mattered most that has made it possible for evil to triumph. The invasion by Italy is a major precursor to World War II. Haley Selassie rose to power during a time of wars and rumors of wars, a time of famine and pestilence. Earthquakes and floods have always threatened people and civilization. But the modern record-keeping and scientific measuring of natural disasters has led to people of nearly every religion to talk about the openings of prophetic seals and the approach of the apocalypse. Northern Africa and Europe had plenty of terrible things happening during the 20th century. It is not unexpected that during times of uncertainty, superstition is strengthened, and the imagined fulfillments of vague doomsday prophecies are recognized by the faithful. There's this uh, this quote I found from him um, during the invasion, and it's like to his soldiers. And the, the wording of it's kind of – I read it a few times to kind of get the gist. I want to read it here and then talk about it. Um, if you withhold from your country, Ethiopia, the death from cough or head cold of which you would otherwise die, refusing to resist in your district – in your patrimony and in your home, our enemy who is coming from a distant country to attack us. And if you persist in not shedding your blood, you will be rebuked for it by your creator and will be cursed by your offspring. Hence, without cooling your heart of accustomed valor, there emerges your decision to fight fiercely, mindful of your history that will last far into the future. If on your march, you touch any property inside houses, or cattle and crops outside, not even grass, straw, and dung excluded. It is like killing your brother who is dying with you. You, countrymen, living at the various access routes, set up market for an army at the place where it is camping, and on the day your district governor will indicate to you, lest the soldiers campaigning for Ethiopia's liberty should, be, should experience difficulty, you will not be charged excess duty. Until the end of the campaign, for anything you are marketing at the military camps. I have granted you remission. After you have been ordered to go to war, but are then idly missing from the campaign, and when you, when you are seized by the local chief or by an accuser, you will have punishment inflicted upon your inherited land, your property, and your body, 
to the accuser, I shall grant a third of your property. So, so this to me is saying, hey, there's an enemy coming to attack us, and we're going to fight them. And if you don't fight, if you refuse to shed blood, then that's going to be on you, and the Creator will curse you and your offspring for that. But beyond I want you to fight hard, beyond I want you to spill the blood for your countrymen, I don't want you acting like a thug. You're not to steal anything from any houses. You're not to go in there and take anything. Don't mess with their cattle. Don't mess with their crops. Don't even touch your grass or straw or animal feces. Leave it as you left it. And, and, and there might be markets set up for the camps, but that, that's fine. But after the war, if you're accused by our enemy of taking anything from them, then I'm going to give them your inherited land and... I'm going to punish you and I'm going to grant them a third of everything you have because that's not what Ethiopia does. I thought that was fascinating. It's, it's pretty badass. Um, it's, it shows, it shows a level of wisdom that he recognizes that these are my guys. This is, this is my army and, and they've been trained as, as, as well, I guess, as, as I can train them, but they're also humans. And when you start going to war, when your job is to kill people, it's easy for the rules to end up being suspended. Um, and I kind of like that just the emperor himself uh, uh, went out there and was just like, we're asking you to go kill people to protect your homeland. So protect your homeland. Don't, don't take the opportunity to pillage it. The whole point here is that we're going to defend what is ours. If you take that opportunity to, to steal from the civilians that you might be going through, if you take this as an opportunity to, as you said, be a thug, then you're no better than – why bother fighting? The whole point here is for us to maintain our sovereignty and to maintain our dignity in the face of a much larger, much more powerful aggressor. So I want you to be representatives of the state. I want you to act with, with ethics and with dignity and to preserve um, your good reputation, and I will follow through. I will make sure that you indeed uh, don't take this as an opportunity to, to line your own pockets. That is, that is very, very cool. Yeah, it's awesome. And and you were saying um, for the for the emperor himself to come out and give that order. And then that's what I thought um, this next quote was kind of interesting because it's the emperor himself, but he's like giving military strategic advice to his commander-in-chief, uh, Ras Kassa, who's then uh, 19th of October, 1935. Um, when you set up tents, it is to be in caves and by trees and in a wood. If the place happens to be adjoining to these and separated in various platoons, tents are to be set up at a distance of 30 cubits from each other. Still using cubits. I thought that was interesting. Um, when an airplane is sighted, one should leave large open roads and wide meadows and march in valleys and trenches by zigzag routes along places which have trees and woods. When an airplane comes to drop bombs, it will not suit it to do so unless it comes down to about 100 meters. Hence, when it flies low for such action, one should fire a volley with a good and very long gun and then quickly disperse. When three or four bullets have hit it, the airplane is bound to fall down. But let only, loose, let only those fire who have been ordered to shoot with a weapon that has been selected for such firing. For if everyone shoots who possesses a gun, there is no advantage in this except to waste bullets and to disclose the men's whereabouts. Lest the airplane, when rising again, should detect the whereabouts of those who are dispersed, it is well to remain cautiously scattered as long as it is still fairly close. 
In time of war, it suits the enemy to aim his guns at adorned shields, ornaments, silver and gold cloaks, silk shirts, and all similar things. Whether one possesses a jacket or not, it is best to wear a narrow-sleeved shirt with faded colors. When we return, with God's help, you can wear your gold and silver decorations then. Now is the time to go and fight. We offer you all these words of advice in the hope that no great harm should befall you through lack of caution. At the same time, we are glad to assure you that if time of war, that in time of war we are ready to shed our blood in your midst for the sake of Ethiopia's freedom. It's really, really, it's so, it's so simple. Like that seems all of these things seem somewhat obvious, um, but. You know, this is this is the 1930s. Um, planes haven't really been around for that long, and they probably um, uh, have have not spent a lot of time flying over Ethiopia yet. Uh, especially not war planes that are dropping that are dropping bombs. I, it's it's so thoughtful. Um, he's he's considering what it's going to be like for these guys on the ground and what precautions they can take to to try to keep them alive. Let's if you're going to die, die to protect Ethiopia. Don't die because you were dumb. Don't die because right. you didn't know that the shiny the thing around your neck is right. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the uh, uh, you know they're going to aim it at your little things that shining on you. So take those off and wear something that kind of fades you out and breaks up your outline. But then he's like, you know, when when we're undefeatable, when God's with us, then you can wear whatever you want. Mm, right. <laughs> yeah, we can <laughs> right we can now, bring it out after the fact. Yeah, it's right now wouldn't do you so well. <laughs> yeah, I like I, I kind of like the way that he speaks too. I like his writing. I, I like the um, uh, I like the the way that 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 he thinks. I like he's kind of he's slow but pointed. He he's making yeah. a point. He doesn't repeat himself a lot, but he makes sure that you get it. I kind of I kind of dig his uh, his prose. Well, and you know that um, that speech before the League of Nations when that happened, there was a bunch of rabble at the beginning of it, and all kinds of stuff broke broke out and. He just sat there quietly and let it, let it calm. And then he spoke. And so yeah. even his preparing to speak is as measured as his speaking. He's incredibly dignified. Um, he's just kind of he he just you you get the sense through history through through reading about him that this was somebody who was um, um, I don't know he reminds me of like Abraham Lincoln a little bit. Um, kind of, kind of quiet and and a bit stern, perhaps, but um, very dedicated and and thinking about the individual soldiers as well as uh, the context of the larger conflict. Um, okay, we've got uh, a little bit more um, to get through here for Haley Selassie. We've got about forty minutes left in the broadcast, so we're going to try to uh, pick up the pace a little bit so that we can actually get to uh, Rastafarianism. Um, the, the conflict, um, continued on the league of nations did not intervene. Um, and eventually the Italians were victorious. Uh, they captured Ethiopia. Uh, they declared Victor Emmanuel III as the new emperor of Ethiopia. Um, some some exiles left Ethiopia on the British cruiser HMS Enterprise. They were bound for Jerusalem in the British Mandate of Palestine, where the Ethiopian royal family maintained a residence. Uh, uh, Heli Selassie already had a house there. Uh, the imperial family disembarked at Haifa 
and then went on to Jerusalem. Once there, Haile Selassie and his retinue prepared to make their case at Geneva. The choice of Jerusalem was highly symbolic since the Solomonic, Solomonic dynasty claimed descent from the house of David. We're going to talk about that in just a couple of minutes. Uh, leaving the Holy Land, Haile Selassie and his entourage sailed for Gibraltar aboard the British cruiser HMS Cape Town. From Gibraltar, the exiles were transferred to an ordinary liner. By doing this, the government of the United Kingdom was spared the expense of a state reception. Um, the speech that he gave uh, ended up earning him uh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year. He was on the cover there. Uh, the speech ultimately failed, but it is still um, one of those stirring and fantastic speeches um, that uh, that we all that we all kind of can appreciate the the human spirit that shines through that. Now, the the Italians could have stopped Haile Selassie from leaving. Um, from what I've read, they had every opportunity to blow up the roads that he was going to be using. They knew where he was headed. They could have killed him. They could have at least kept him in Ethiopia. They didn't. They let him run. Um, and so he uh, took uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of gold with him, left Ethiopia in order to um, survive until um, uh, Ethiopia was eventually uh, liberated later on during the war. Um, the Ember's pleas for international support did take root in the United States, particularly among African-American organizers sympathetic to the Ethiopian case. In 1937, Haile Selassie was to give a Christmas Day radio address to the American people to thank his supporters when his taxi was involved in a traffic accident, leaving him with a fractured knee. Rather than canceling the radio appearance, he proceeded in much pain to complete the address in which he linked Christianity and goodwill with the covenant of the League of Nations and asserted that war is not the only means to stop war. Um, with the birth of the Son of God, an unprecedented, an unrepeatable, and a long-anticipated phenomenon occurred. He was born in a stable instead of a palace, in a manger instead of a crib. The hearts of the wise men were struck by fear and wonder due to his majestic humbleness. The kings prostrated themselves before him and worshipped him. Peace be to those who have goodwill. This became the first message. Um, you can see how much he's relying on Christianity to make his point. Um, he's, he's relying on, on faith and Christianity as, uh, as, as a bit of a, as a bit of a, of a, of a, of a crutch during this uh, terrible, difficult time. And he believes that uh, he can use that to rally uh, his people and the people of the world. He's associating Christianity with just general goodness. If I talk about Christianity, the people who respond will be the good guys. That seems to be a bit of his message here. Um, I think Italy finally lost Ethiopia again in 1941, and Haile Selassie returned um, to being emperor. Um, on August 27th of 1942, Haile Selassie abolished the legal basis of slavery throughout the empire and imposed severe penalties, including death for slave trading. After World War II, Ethiopia became a charter member of the United Nations. Um, in 1948, um, uh, actually, that's, that's the end of that. Um, he also left his home in exile, Fairfield House, um, to the city of Bath for the use of the aged in 1959, the emperor continued to be a staunch ally of the West while pursuing a firm policy of decolonization in Africa, which was still largely under European colonial rule. The United Nations conducted a lengthy inquiry regarding the status of Eritrea um, with the superpowers each vying for a stake 
in the state's future. Britain, the administrator at the time, suggested the partition of Eritrea between Sudan and Ethiopia, separating Christians and Muslims. The idea was instantly rejected by Eritrean political parties as well as the um, UN. In, uh, in 1963, Haley Selassie presided over the formation of the Organization of Africa Unity, the uh, OAU, or yeah, and the persecutor, the uh, precursor of the continent-wide African Union, the AU. The new organization would establish its headquarters in Addis, Addis Ababa in May of that year. Haley Selassie was elected as the OAU's first official chairperson, a rotating seat. Along with Modibo Keita of Mali, the Ethiopian leader, would later help successfully negotiate the Bameko Accords, which brought an end to the border conflict between Morocco and Algeria. In 1964, Haile Selassie would initiate the concept of the United States of Africa, a proposition later taken up by Muammar Gaddafi. On October 4, 1963, Haile Selassie addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations, referring in his address to his earlier speech in the League of Nations. He said, 27 years ago, as Emperor of Ethiopia, I mounted the rostrum in Geneva, Switzerland, to address the League of Nations and to appeal for relief from the destruction which had been unleashed against my defenseless nation by the fascist invader. I spoke then both to and for the the conscience of the world. My words went unheeded, but history testifies to the accuracy of the warning that I gave in 1936. Today, I stand before the world organization which has succeeded to the mantle discarded by this discredited predecessor. It is, is enshrined the principle of collective security, which I unsuccessfully invoked at Geneva. Here in this assembly reposes the best, perhaps the last, hope for the peaceful survival of mankind. The guy, if nothing else, is inspiring. We have to give him that. Um, we, want to, uh, we want to get through the, um, the last 10 years of his reign. Um, in November of uh, 1963, he was among other heads of state, including the president of France, who traveled to Washington, D.C. to attend the funeral of uh, President John F. Kennedy. In 66, Haile Selassie attempted to create a modern progressive tax that included registration of land. This law led to a revolt in Gojum, uh, which was repressed, although enforcement of the tax was abandoned. The revolt, having achieved its design in undermining the tax, encouraged other landowners to defy Haile Selassie. In 67, he visited Montreal, Canada to open the Ethiopian Pavilion at the Expo at the 1967 World's Fair, where he received great acclaim amongst other world leaders there for the occasion. In 1970, he visited Italy as a guest of President Giuseppe Saragat, and in Milan, he met uh, the president of the Italian Savings Bank Association. He visited China in October of 1971 and was the first foreign head of state to meet Mao Zedong following the death of Mao's designated successor, Lin Biao, in a plane crash in Mongolia. In 1973, oil crisis hit Ethiopia amidst a devastating famine, compounding its effect and undermining support for the emperor. Some reports suggest that the emperor was unaware of the extent of the famine, while others assert that he was well aware of it. In addition to the exposure of attempts by corrupt 
local officials to cover up the famine from the imperial government. The Kremlin's depiction of Haile Selassie's Ethiopia as backwards and inept relative to the purported utopia of Marxism and Leninism contributed to the popular uprising that led to its downfall and the rise of Mengitsu Haile Mariam. The famine and its image in the media undermined popular support for the government and Haile Selassie's once unassailable personal popularity fell. I think when most people think of Ethiopia in modern terms, we think of lots and lots and lots of starving people. Um, It was a massive humanitarian crisis that was uh, popular uh, among uh, the American zeitgeist in like the 1980s. Um, There was a big song about it. Uh, A lot of celebrities talked out um, trying to trying to uh, gain support and gain donations in order to help feed the people of Ethiopia that were quite suddenly um, starving in a once proud nation. Um, in February of 74, four days of serious riots in Addis Ababa against a sudden economic inflation left five dead. The emperor responded by announcing on national television a reduction in petrol prices and a freeze on the cost of basic commodities. This calmed the public, but the promised 33% military wage hike was not substantial enough to pacify the army, which then mutinied. Beginning in Asmara, and spreading throughout the empire. This mutiny led to the resignation of Prime Minister Aklilu Habti Wold on the 27th of February 1974. Heli Selassie again went on television to agree to the army's demands for still greater pay. Um, he named a new prime minister, but despite the many concessions, discontent continued in March with a four-day general strike that paralyzed the nation. Um, the, the DERG, a committee of low-ranking military officials and enlisted men set up in June to investigate the military's demands, took advantage of the government's disarray to depose Haile Selassie on the 12th of September, 1974. General Amman Michael Andam, a Protestant of Eritrean origin, served briefly as provisional head of state pending the return of Crown Prince Asfa Wosun who was then receiving medical treatment abroad. Haile Selassie was placed under house arrest briefly on the, at the 4th Army Division in Addis Ababa, while most of his family was detained at the Lake Duke of Harar's residence in the north of the capital. The last months of the emperor's life were spent in imprisonment in the Grand Palace. Reportedly, his mental condition was such that he believed he was still emperor of Ethiopia. Um, emperor Haile Selassie I, um, was officially deposed on November 23rd, 1974. And Lucy was discovered the very next day. In the midst of all this crisis, this ancient three and a half million year old Australopithecine was found. It's right at the same moment that old that new history is being written and old history is being refound. I thought that was amazing. The next day, I knew that it, you know, tied together to Ethiopia, but I thought that was it. That's just fascinating. It's uh, it's it's I, it doesn't really mean anything, and yet the pattern no, of mind likes it. It's sort of neat, yeah. you know. Oh, I like it a lot. Yeah, I like the uh, I like the association. Okay, so now that you have an understanding of Haile Selassie, um, we can explain to you the roots of Rastafarianism. Um, Scott, we often talk about the three major Abrahamic religions, but it's more than three, isn't it? Yeah, we were discussing um, on a few episodes ago about Mormonism being uh, possibly the fourth Abrahamic religion. 
And then when you brought up to me a few weeks ago that there was a fifth, I was like, really? <laughs> this, I, thought, this... I thought we were I thought we were breaking ground when we said there's four. <laughs> <laughs> there are uh, there are we can easily label five. Um, the fifth is less than a hundred years old. Um, People generally find Rastafarianism through a search for a religious fulfillment that is free of the dogmatic and judgmental notions that are so often associated with Christianity and Islam. Most of the major religions on earth rely on a level of organization that lends itself to control, corruption, and abuse. In many ways, Rastafarianism becomes the exception to this rule. Let's start with its oldest religious roots. Ethiopia was known to the writers of the Bible, who mentioned the kingdom of Ethiopia, south of Egypt, rather often, sometimes referring to it as Cush, and one of the, it's, it's one of the most prominent theories for the location of what the Bible calls Sheba. Um, so for this, we're going to do a, a, a quick touch on um, the famed Queen of Sheba and uh, King Solomon. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord. She came to test Solomon with hard questions, arriving at Jerusalem with a very, with a great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones. She came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had in her, on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. The, um, Solomonic dynasty is is believed to be traced all the way down from King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, uh, who had a son named Melanic the First, and that line is believed by Ethiopians, by Rastafarians, um, to be a continual lineage that the great 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 however many grandfathers before Haile Selassie was King Solomon himself. Um, uh, the Rastafarian Orthodox uh, 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 Church also claim that they possess the Ark of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. I actually think this is meant to say the, um, uh, the Ethiopian Church. Um, the Rastafarian connection to the Jewish nation goes deeper with their more surprising claim of knowing the location of the lost Ark of the Covenant. Followers of Selassie in Ethiopia claim they are in possession of the Ark, which they describe as an acacia wood box covered in gold, originally taken by Queen Makeda, also known as the Queen of Sheba, and Menelik, her son, by King Solomon. They allegedly removed the Ark from the temple without Solomon's knowledge. The whereabouts of the Ark of, Cove- of, the, of, the Ark of the Covenant have been unknown since the destruction of the temple, leaving room for even this Rastafarian theory to be true. Since its abduction by Makeda and Menelik, the Ark is believed to be protected by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which preserves it in the famous cathedral of Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion, originally built in the 4th century. Um, I'm, I'm actually pretty sure that this is inaccurate because I remember watching Indiana Jones, and I think they found it. Yeah. didn't? Th- yeah, they found it. They opened it, melted off a bunch of Nazis' faces. Right. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's not really. I mean, this is this is wrong because I remember. Yeah, George Lucas told me, and I remember Harrison Ford uh, having to look away so that his face didn't melt. That's right. That's, and they didn't once mention the staff with the thing up top that points to where it is. So that's completely totally left inaccurate. Out. Yeah, ah, fake news. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the Rastafari movement b- began in Jamaica, uh, where most of the black population had originally been slaves forced from Africa to work. The movement was started as a means of empowerment. As such, it may not be too surprising that Rastafari as a belief system completely rejects the standards and structure of Western society, which is often referred to in part or whole as Babylon. Um, and at this point, we need to touch on uh, Marcus Garvey. We're having all kinds of – we're just jumping through history. This is so great. Um, uh, for those who don't know who Marcus Garvey is, um, he was a Jamaican political leader, a publisher, a journalist, an entrepreneur, and an orator. Uh, he was a proponent of the Pan-Africanism movement, uh, to which end he founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. Uh, he also founded the Black Star Line, a shipping and passenger line which promoted the return of the African diaspora to their ancestral lands. Garveyism intended persons of African ancestry in the diaspora to redeem the nations of Africa and for the European colonial powers to leave the continent. His essential ideas about Africa were stated in an editorial in Negro World entitled African Fundamentalism, where he wrote, our union must know no climb, boundary, or nationality to let us hold together under all climes and in every country. Uh, Marcus Garvey is referred to as the prophet Marcus Mosiah by Rastafarians. Um, He said, look to Africa. This is in 1920. Look to Africa where a black king shall be crowned and time of uh, the time of Africa's redemption is near. Uh, This was seen as a prophecy, which, of course, came true for many with the rise of Haile Selassie. Garvey is associated with such biblical figures as Jeremiah and John the Baptist. In the same way that John the Baptist was a forerunner for Jesus, Marcus Garvey is seen as a forerunner for Haile Selassie. Um, Let's talk a little bit about... um, about Ja and the connection here, um, where where the Rastafarians uh, what they what they have to say about God, uh, which they call Ja, which is sort of a short like the first three letters of Yahweh, but they they use a hard J, they say Ja. Now Ja is often placed in the front of Ra's Tafari, referring to him as Lord. Many claim him to be Christ in the second coming or Almighty God Himself. Many Rastas consider Haile Selassie to be divine. Many Rastafarians worship him. Before his coronation as the emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie was thought by early Rastafarian preachers to be the Messiah or God himself. Some Rastas believe that it was never Haile Selassie who was Christ, but the lion spirit within him. Though some Rastas deny his deity and worship Christ, to most Rastas, he is their redeemer and Africa is the promised land particularly Ethiopia, which they believe to be Zion. The Bible says that Jesus will return to rule over nations, and he is referred to as a king. Rastafarians believe that Jesus was a manifestation of Christ the Savior, while Haile Selassie is the manifestation of Christ the King. Upon achieving the title emperor in 1930, Rastafarianism suggests that Selassie achieved the power of the Holy Trinity and became divine. What amazes me is that here we have a religion that actually claims its prophecies have been fulfilled. The common organization of a monotheism is to build a narrative around a god, invariably associated with miracles as a way of providing his power and divi- of proving his power and divinity, and then a series of prophets or visionaries receiving information in advance from this all-powerful being. Religion takes place between the supposed events of the miracles but before the fulfillment of the prophecies that accompany them, relying on old myths as the foundation for faith and the promise of prophecy as the reason for faith. It says in a book that the laws of nature were suspended in incredible ways for all to see. 
That same book says that one day the entity capable of bending reality at will plans to show up again and do more incredible things for all to see. Once upon a time, a man from heaven made all this. One day after you die, you will go to that same heaven. Religion almost always utilizes these bookends, magic before the present and magic to come. Rastafarianism suggests that the magic has come. The prophecy has been fulfilled. It blows off the Catholic and Protestant notion that the Redeemer is always just around the next corner, always preparing to return like a thief in the night, that the end times are just about to start. Hell, the Jews don't even think the Messiah has come here the first time, but Rastas think he has been on earth twice. Now, given that Rastafarianism sort of rejects uh, uh, much in the way of an organizational structure, they reject priests, they reject uh, tithing and, and all of these, these ideas, it ends up being very, very individualized. Uh, it's difficult to say what Rastas believe. Uh, it's difficult to pinpoint what this religion says, because aside from a few major points, most of it is is somewhat open to uh, to interpretation, and it can change from person to person. It's sort of um, it's sort of a religion of one in an almost promoted way. So we found um, uh, from a website called RastafariTimes.com, we found uh, a list that's labeled "What can be said about Rastafari that would be true for all Rastas." Um, Scott, let us let us hear this. I think it's an interesting way to do the list. Okay. <clears throat> Some Rastas interpret the Bible literally. Some interpret the Bible metaphorically. Some reject the Bible altogether. Some study various spiritual and religious traditions. Others think this is blasphemy. Some Rastas worship Haley Selassie as Yah or God. Some worship Jesus Christ or see these two as having a single identity. Some worship neither. Some Rastas embrace Selassie's Christianity. Others are not so comfortable. Some Rastas see the roots of Rasta in African spirituality. Some know nothing about African spirituality. Some Rastas are gravitites. Some are pan-African activists. Some Rastas are other sorts of political activists. Some say activism is a waste of time in Babylon. Some Rastas believe in a Rasta priesthood and Rasta churches. Some do not. Some Rastas believe in physical uh, repatriation to Ethiopia, seeing it as Zion and described in the Bible. Some do not. Some Rastas view ganja as sacrament. Some do not. Some Rastas wear dreadlocks. Some do not. Some Rastas adhere to a strict dress code. Some do not. Some Rastas belong to specific orders like Bobo Ashanti, uh, Nibugini, 12 tribes of Israel. Some do not. Some Rastas reject the idea of whites claiming Rasta. Some do not. Some Rastas believe women are lesser beings and have special rules for their behavior and participation. Some do not. They, um, they're quite keen to, to reject uh, uh, too much baggage with the label. Um, from 1959 to 1971, Jamaica's popular music uh, became identified with the Rastafarians, a social movement that gave voice to the country's poor black communities. Uh, in response to this challenge, the Jamaican government banned politically controversial reggae songs from the airwaves and jailed or deported Rastafarian leaders. I, I find I, I was stunned by this um, for for 11, 12 years. Um, reggae was illegal in Jamaica. Um, 
Yet some reggae became internationally popular in the 1970s. Divisions among Rastafarians grew wider, spawning a number of pseudo-Rastafarians who embraced only the external symbolism of the worldwide religion. Exploiting this opportunity, Jamaica's new prime minister, Michael Manley, brought Rastafarian political imagery and themes to the mainstream. Eventually, reggae and Rastafari evolved into Jamaica's chief cultural commodity and tourist attraction. Visitors to, Jamaican are off, to Jamaica are often unaware that reggae was a revolutionary music rooted in the suffering of Jamaica's poor. Rastafarians were once a target of police harassment and public condemnation. Now the music is a marketing tool, and the Rastafarians are no longer a violent counterculture, but an important symbol of Jamaica's new cultural heritage. Of course, the most famous um, Rastafarian probably of all time is Bob Marley, um, who, who took all of this to heart and, of course, wrote very, very famous and moving music um, uh, from a Rastafarian point of view. Um, he sort of made it famous, and, and after Bob Marley, uh, we really see a giant uptick. Today, there are uh, – it's difficult to get exact numbers, but, but it's thought that there are about a million uh, Rastafarians on the planet. And I, I would probably be, be inconsiderate if I didn't say that most – Rastafarians don't like the word Rastafarian. They don't like isms. They don't like Ians. So they don't like Rastafarianism or Rastafarian. Um, um, they like to say that they practice Rastaology or just call themselves a Rasta instead of uh, putting any kind of uh, um, extra word on the end that denotes an ideology. Um, um, God is within all according to Rastafari. Uh, Rastafarianism. The concept of I and I, which is so central to Rastafari, reflects a radical identification of man in God, God in man, and the unity of all beings, one love, from I and I. It is not far to travel to I am God. In the same way that Selassie and Jesus is both man and God, so may I be with the proper conduct in my life, the true liberty. And this reconciliation of humans and God, of spirit and flesh, takes place here in history. Um, in Rastafari, the black African diaspora are regarded as being exiles living in Babylon, a term applied to Western society. The term Babylon is adopted because of its biblical associations. In the Old Testament, Babylon is the Mesopotamian city which conquered and deported the Hebrew people. Uh, in the New Testament, Babylon was used as a euphemism for the Roman Empire, which was regarded as acting in a destructive manner akin to the ancient Babylonians. Babylon is viewed as being responsible both for the Atlantic slave trade, which removed enslaved Africans from their continent, and for the ongoing poverty facing the African diaspora. European colonialism and global capitalism are also viewed as manifestations of Babylon. They turn to scripture to explain the Atlantic slave trade. Rastas believe that the slavery, exile, and exploitation of black Africans was punishment for failing to live up to their status as Jah's chosen people. Um, Rastas regard soldiers and police as agents of Babylon, which of course takes on a more and more vague sense as it can just be applied to um, uh, general ideas surrounding Western culture or capitalism, what have you. Um, give us, give us a, a quick uh, understanding of the opposite of Babylon, the concept of Zion. Trying to get a hold of it here. There we go. <clears throat> Zion refers to either Ethiopia or the whole continent of Africa after the Day of Judgment. No replaces believe, as Bob Marley sang. Rastafarians do not believe Haley Selassie is God, and that they, the Rastas, are the chosen people. They claim to know these things and would never admit to believing them. That's interesting. 
Yeah, there's sort of an epistemological um, uh, problem all of a sudden where they, they reject that they have belief. They don't seem to, to want to have uh, faith as the way that, that we would define it as believing in something even in the absence of evidence. Um, they just claim to, to know it. Um, it, is, it is knowledge, not merely uh, a belief, um, which would certainly make something like uh, street epistemology uh, some, uh, fairly difficult, I think, um, if, you ever, if you ever met um, a Rasta oh. and attempted to have the conversation with him. It might be, it might be a, little, a little difficult. Um, okay, we've got, to, we've got to zip through the rest here. Um, the concept of Ethiopia being Zion is perhaps the most important in the lives of Rastafarians. To them, Zion represents their true home, a place where they are accepted and belong. It is a God-given place to which they will eventually be brought to. Through redemption, they will be brought out of Babylon and into Zion. Um, heaven and hell for the Rastas is not applicable in direct comparison to the previous Abrahamic religions. Instead of a celestial plane above and a burning pit of pain below, the Rastafarian concept relies more on this reality than on the assumed next one. Zion and Babylon denote actual places you can physically reach regardless of your faith. Ethiopia is on a map, but reaching Zion for the spiritual Rasta is not the same thing as getting on a plane and flying to the Horn of Africa, nor is Babylon avoided by staying out of Jamaica or any other place controlled by money, imperialism, or subjugation. Zion and Babylon are both ideas in the self as well as in the world. Arasta believes that regardless of where he physically is, he can be in Zion spiritually, perhaps even mentally. The modern idea surrounding Zion might be something like longing for Ethiopia, feeling a connection to it, or at least to what it represents. Having a sense of a homeland that is more than physical, it is also a concept of the heart. One may feel they can repatriate to Zion internally, and someday, if possible, repatriating to Zion physically would be even better. Who needs life with God after death if God is everywhere? Who needs a priest to speak to God? Arasta believes he can speak to God anywhere, anytime, and be of him and with him anywhere. Zion, for many, becomes symbolic as a state to achieve with the self and with the spirit, while rejecting the opposing and corrupting symbolism of Babylon in order to be at peace and as one with the heavenly creator. We tend to think, here at ISM, that it is best to believe in things that are true. Anything else is superfluous and can only serve to encourage the negative effects of confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance. In that vein, Rastafarianism deserves, deserves some criticism for its extraordinary yet un unsubstantiated claims. We should all resist the temptation to place a human being on a pedestal of divinity. There is no such thing as a perfect person, no such thing as a man or woman who transcends the fallibility inherent in the risen apes we are. History shows us that when these, that when this, these kinds of claims are made, when a human is worshipped as something more than he is, sectarianism and persecution follow. There is nothing wrong with respect for the accomplishments, attitudes, or philosophies of remarkable people, but we must never forget that even the best human is still human. Haley Selassie is no exception. He should not be worshipped or thought of as a god. That said, Rastafarianism seems to have largely and rather nimbly sidestepped the most notorious problems with monotheism. It does not rely on a central organization of leaders who have the privilege of interpreting ancient texts for the people. It does not tell children that they are going to burn in hell. It does not reject this life in the name of the next. Quite the opposite. Rastafarianism emphasizes the value of this life and encourages a thoughtful and spiritual journey that is not antithetical to peace or freedom. I respect these notions, 
and I rather like that the fifth Abrahamic religion has learned something about the pitfalls of its predecessors. It seems quite preferable to the freedom-crushing ideas of Islam or the solipsistic self-loathing baked into Christianity. It remains a religion, and it still makes claims that are unsubstantiated and unempirical, but it doesn't attempt to subjugate apostates or unbelievers the way that institutionalized monotheisms do at every opportunity. There is something rather symmetrical and pleasant about the origins of this most modern of Abrahamic theologies. It was inspired by a modern emperor of Ethiopia, ancient cradle of humanity, where some of the earliest apes gazed at the sky and wondered what they might find over the next mountain. An evolved homo sapien inspired a new ideology based on religions that are ancient by comparison, yet were born just yesterday when measured against the history of those early ancestors that lived in the same beautiful part of the world. Our remarkable species continually searches for progress, engaging across the eons in the process of remixing old ideas and building on what has been achieved by earlier generations. As our roots can be traced to Lucy, Rastafarianism can be traced to the old Jewish traditions of monotheistic practices. Evolution is seen in both the natural world and in the blending and dividing of cultures around the globe. This is somehow hopeful. Nothing lasts forever, and nothing is immune to change for the better. It could all, we could all use the reminder that no matter how permanent an idea or a species or a continent seems, now new and unforeseen factors are always ready to alter the entire course of history in one way or another. We are a part of a living species on a living planet with living ideas. Nothing is above alteration, and nothing is immune to progress. That's awesome. Okay. Corey, are you ready? I, you know, I keep thinking that I'm ready. I keep thinking, uh, yeah, it's, it's not going to be a big deal. And then I think about it. Um, yes, I think, uh, I think I'm ready. Let's, uh, let's fill everybody in. And now it's time for our announcement. Longtime listeners of the show will know that we here at ISM are supporters of the efforts of the Freedom from Religion Foundation in preserving and defending the separation of church and state. This is an organization that inspires us personally and does the invaluable work that keeps a strong wall between our secular nation and the creeps of religious infringement in the vein of Jeffersonian attitudes. We are all in their debt as American citizens. The co-president of the FFRF is Dan Barker, a prolific author and speaker on the topics of atheism and secularism. We have borrowed a few of his quotes for our program, most recently last week on the episode entitled Spirituality Without God. Mr. Barker has written a few phenomenal books, including Life Driven Purpose, The Good Atheist, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction, and Losing Faith in Faith, all available at fine bookstores as well as online distributors such as Amazon and Google Books. Dan Barker has co-hosted The Atheist Experience, been kicked off, off, kicked off of Fox News for suggesting that religious freedom means religious freedom for all, and met with some of the greatest public intellectuals engaging in this conversation, including Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. It is our pleasure to announce that Mr. Barker will be appearing on this show for a special episode to air this coming Friday, May 5th. We will have the opportunity to discuss freedom from religion, atheism, and his important work in encouraging reason, supporting scientific discovery, and standing vigilant against those who would attempt to circumnavigate the Constitution in the name of theocratic preference. It is an extraordinary opportunity, and we invite all of you to tune in for the broadcast here on blogtalkradio.com slash podcast on Periscope at ISM Podcast underscore, meaning at 2 p.m. Mountain Time, 
4 p.m. on the East Coast. For those of you who can't make it for the live broadcast, the episode will, of course, be available on iTunes under Informed Secular Minds shortly after. So that is happening. Um, I'm trying very, diff- very hard to remain uh, professional, but at the same time, this is somebody for whom we have great respect. Um, somebody who we really look to as as um, a leader in the in the secular uh, movement that has a long and celebrated tradition in this country. Um, Mr. Barker is is an inspiration and a fine debater. Um, you can you can find fantastic videos where he, with such such quirk and love just lays waste to the poor arguments presented by the opposition when it comes to atheism. He has debated what the other side would call their greatest, and he has emerged victorious every time. Um, We are very, very grateful to the FFRF and to uh, Danny Barker, Dan's son, who we originally were able to speak with in pitching this idea. Um, And of course, we are, uh, we are uh, quite grateful to Dan Barker for agreeing to uh, appear on an episode of the informed secular minds podcast, which once again, will be this Friday. Um, It'll be available on pods on, on uh, Periscope at ISM podcast underscore. We will be promoting it over the next day or two to make sure that everybody has the time and date. Um, And we'll, we will be broadcasting live, uh, whatever platform you're currently using to listen to us. It'll be there. Um, We'll be on blog talk radio. We'll be on, on Periscope and we will be on iTunes um, after the fact, it's going to be a very, very exciting conversation. Um, and we are to say that we are looking forward to this, I think, is the definition of an understatement. I'm surprised we make it to the end of the broadcast to announce it. <laughs> Indeed. I wanted to tell everybody days ago. Yeah, it's it's been it's been, I, you know, I'm starting to think about like uh, the movies and the TV shows where they have to sign all the actors to secrecy. I've been bursting to uh, to let everybody know about this because it is uh, it is a very, very exciting. Um, but uh, anyway, that will be the day after tomorrow. That will be uh, Friday afternoon. And we hope that you can join us for that very special uh, extra broadcast. Well. Is that it? Did we survive? Did we make it? I think we made it. I think we did. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, wrap the show up now, and then I'm going to go and uh, try to prepare for this um, for this episode that we're going to do on Friday. We want to thank everybody for being here tonight. This was a really, really fun episode for us to do, and it let us talk about a lot of fun stuff. You can follow the show at ISM Podcast underscore on Twitter and on Periscope. Um, shoot us a message. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, uh, give us a follow on our new Facebook page as well under Informed Secular Minds. You can follow Scott at El Dutorino and myself at Dopanephrine. Uh, why don't you reach out to the FFRF and follow them as well they are doing fantastic work and we want to support them in any way that we possibly can Young Athlon 399 has hosted our broadcast on Periscope this evening Cat is Cat helps with our administration and helps make sure that we've got our notes ready to go and we want to thank Arabin for all of the work that she does on our uh, coordination side and uh, doing our graphics for us give us some love on Patreon patreon.com slash informed podcast We will see you all day after tomorrow for a very, very special show.